Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 388th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a tech wizard, a thrice-published author, and a rising star in the world of comedy. For many people, 2020 was the worst year of their life, but for her, it was, at least in a professional sense, the best. Indeed, during the global pandemic, her do-it-yourself video shot at home in Brooklyn, featuring her lip-syncing and acting out then-President Donald Trump saying ridiculous things, went absolutely viral and won her plaudits from the likes of Jerry Seinfeld, Cher, and Kamala Harris, among many others. The Washington Post described her as just about the only good thing in a year mired in isolation, racial unrest, and political conflict. Adweek named her Digital Creator of the Year, and the Associated Press selected her as one of the year's five breakthrough entertainers. Now, she is being given the larger platform that she so richly deserves, including an Emmy-contending Netflix comedy special called Sarah Cooper, Everything's Fine. I'm talking, of course, about Sarah Cooper. Over the course of our conversation, the 44-year-old immigrant from Jamaica reflects on her decades-long struggle between doing the responsible thing and pursuing the performing arts that she so loves— how she arrived at and then walked away from a tremendous career at Google in order to focus on comedy, what led her to turn to TikTok to mock Trump, and why she thinks her videos resonated with people in a way that other Trump impersonations perhaps did not, what she hopes the unusual sort of pandemic-era fame that she attained will yield in the years to come, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you. And to begin with on this podcast, we always just cover a few basics. Can you share with our listeners where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living? Um, hi, Scott. Nice to be here. <laughs> Such a deep question to start out with. Wow. Um, <laughs> I was born in Jamaica, but I was raised in Rockville, Maryland. And my dad was an engineer for the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority. Okay. And my mom was a human resources director for a health consulting firm. And now, they're both retired now, so. <laughs> nice, nice. And they deserve it, right? Because there were, you got, you had a bunch of siblings, I believe, right? Yeah, two older sisters and one older brother. Okay, yeah. so how, by the time you came along, were they, uh, they, they, were they spent or they, they were uh, extra attentive? <laughs> yeah, I have no idea why they went ahead with me. I feel like maybe I, they probably weren't planning on me because they had their hands full with my <laughs> sisters and my brother. So, yeah, but then, you know, I came along and they were like, oh, wow, glad we tried again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's been fun prepping for this, obviously, by going back through your various visual content, but also just reading about, you know, your your story, which I guess the, the thing that really stood out to me the, the most about your earlier years was that you were, I think, drawn to the arts, it sounds like, as a kid, but took a long detour. And I guess I just wondered, there was something that happened at 17, I guess, almost a communication with yourself. What was the context around that, if you can just share? Because it sounds like it's always been a tug of war for you about whether or not to go down this route. Yeah, it has. I mean, you know, as many immigrants will 
attest to when you come to this country, um, you come here for the opportunity to be either a businessman, a lawyer, or a doctor. Those are the three options. <laughs> um, so it's, it's really hard to, to go to your parents who are, you know, Jamaican immigrants who work very hard and say, I want to act. <laughs> you know, it's just not what they <laughs> want to hear because they want you to own a house and get married and settle down and have, you know, be financially independent. Um, I'm at my parents' house right now. They, mm-hmm. Every night, my dad talks to me about taxes, indexed annuities, <laughs> 401k. Um, like, and I, I still don't really understand any of it, even though I have a degree in economics, which I got because my parents didn't want me to get a theater degree. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, at 17, I, you know, was going to go off to college and um, I got a theater scholarship and really wanted to do theater. And my parents were very, I would say, they encouraged me to not do that, or at least have some kind of backup so that I wouldn't be struggling. Um, And I felt it was necessary for me to not let myself down and not let my own dreams down. And so I created a contract between me and myself where (laughs) I said, I, Sarah Cooper, being of sound mind and body, and I didn't even realize (laughs) that sound mind was one phrase. Um, I put a comma after sound. So (laughs) Sarah Cooper, sound, comma, mind (laughs) and body. I'm glad glad you are a sound. (laughs) (laughs) I was totally of sound. Yeah. I promised myself to, um, you know, try to be an actress for at least 10 years or, you know, as long as it takes or or if I decide to change my mind and I don't want that anymore, that's fine, too. But I just promised myself that I would give it a try. And so um, I signed the contract. I had my sister witness it because I am so business <laughs> that I had a witness. OK, this was I, I, I can't even believe I didn't sign it in blood. I mean, I was so serious about this thing. <laughs> Um, yeah. And I signed this contract to myself and I still have it. I just came across it the other day, actually. So in your mind at that point, what that would mean was that I'm going to go to not go to use this theater scholarship to University of Maryland, go there instead to spend my undergrad years, as you've just you know said, doing economics, but that somewhere along the line, these years are going to be made up for with in terms of acting somewhere down the road. Yeah, it was just always in the back of my head, like, you know, um, yeah, I'm going to get this degree. But, you know, I, I, you know, I sent my picture to a casting director. I worked, you know, as an intern at um, Central Casting for a little bit. I was always just had my like one little toe in um, theater. I did a, you know, production at the University of Maryland and, you know, went eventually found design because it was creative but I could also make money, which was like, oh, the two things I can be creative and I can also make money. But, you know, I also really did like design. I really like being um, I like being on a laptop. I have this story about, you know, my first job as a designer and they gave me an office on my first day. I was making like twenty five thousand dollars a year and I just but I had my own office and I was so excited <laughs> about this office. And I think most actors will tell you that the thought of sitting in an office all day like kills them, but right. it didn't kill me. I was like, oh my God, I have an office. I have a desk. <laughs> I have a boss. Like I was really excited about the whole thing. So well, um, it's kind of, I think that was the thing about it. It was like, yeah, I really wanted to act, but I could see myself working in a job like that. And I did it for a long time and I, you know, I had fun and I was good at it. So um, I think that was the thing that was hard was that I did have this passion, but then I was also 
good at other things, you know? Well, it sounds like the the key discovery at, I guess it was while you were at University of Maryland, was Photoshop? Yes, I discovered Photoshop, <laughs> multimedia design. Remember when they called it multimedia? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so this just, when you talk about, you know, that you went on and had, you know, some jobs in, in design after college, this this was, I guess, how would you more specifically, like what kind of stuff were you involved with as you, you know, you acquire these skills in college. Now you go out into the real world with your economics degree. You're going to put it to work doing, doing this stuff. What, what were you doing? Well, I got a, I got a, a master's degree in design at Georgia tech. And then I got a job as an interactive designer at um, an ad agency. So I was like mm-hmm. a little Don Draper. <laughs> making flash oh, ads. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine Don Draper making flash ads? That's what I was doing. Um, I would, you know, I, those ads that would come up, like if you went to rottentomatoes.com and those ads that would come up and take over your whole screen and you yes. find the X button, like that was what I was working on. Oh, thanks so much for Sorry. those. I really appreciate those. <laughs> the harder it was to find the X button, the more money I made. So, oh, I, um, I, well, you must have done very well. <laughs> yeah. I was just in flash all the time, just making animated ads and, you know, animated experiences. And that's, that's what I did. That was my first thing. And, and we shouldn't like downplay it though. It sounds like you were a pretty incredible student and then person in that field, right? I mean, you were a creative director at a, at an, at a design firm at what age? I was a creative director at 25, 26. Which yeah. is a big deal. And, mm-hmm. and so could you at that point have imagined that this was going to be the rest of your life or was it still nagging at you that, you know, I still have this itch to do more with uh, performing arts? Yeah, I think that that contract to myself just never went away. Like it was always there. And even though I, you know, after I left that job and I went to Yahoo and was designing there, it was just always in the back of my head um, that there was something I promised myself and there was something I felt like I was born to do and I wasn't doing it. And I, I, uh, I remember being at that, that job and I, I started acting, I was taking classes while, um, at that ad, ad agency and I got a job to be a maid in some, um, print ad and it was paying like $6,000 for one day of work. And so I had to do it. It was like yeah. so much money, but then I just, I blew off work and I almost got fired, but then I didn't get fired, thankfully. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I was doing things like that where it was just like kind of sort of living a double life, you know? Right. So what brought about your move to New York, which was a big, big thing along the way? Yeah, I moved to New York when I was 32 and I had just tried stand-up comedy in Atlanta for the first time. And then I was in the Estella Adler um, Conservatory for a summer um, a summer study and I was the I was probably one of the oldest people in that group. Um, it was all like 20 year olds. And I just felt like so over the hill at 32. I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? And then I just fell in love with New York. So I ended up staying. I want to come back to the stand up part of that conversation in a moment. But just in terms of day to day living, was it also because you had, was it, was Google in New York? 
Yeah, Google was in New York, but I I, I moved to New York pretty um, just not well. I moved to New York just for the summer. I was going to go back to Atlanta, and then I decided to stay because I really liked it there. And um, yeah, tried to do freelance design and stand up and audition at the same time, and then immediately was like, "Wow, I have a twenty thousand dollar credit card bill, and I <laughs> can't afford to live here." So um, that's when I. Uh, Ended up at Google. Ended up at a dead end job at Google. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I was going to say. I mean, most people would love to have that be their their fallback. So in this case, though, it was because you you had really distinguished yourself at at I guess the most previous thing would have been Yahoo, where you were now going from. I, I guess what what exactly were you doing at Yahoo, and then what were you brought to Google to do? Um, interactive design. I mean, it's all yeah. kind of, but I guess it wasn't, I wasn't really making ads anymore. I was more doing interfaces. And so at Google, I was doing the, you know, got Google Docs, uh, slides mm -hmm. and sheets. So that was my thing and designing the interface. So people are like, oh, what does that mean to design the interface? I mean, it basically means like if you open up Google Docs and you, uh, start to type, like I design, like I decided how much of a shadow there should be around the page. I decided mm -hmm. like what the icons were, what order of the icons, like basically I just copied Microsoft all day. That's all yeah. I did. <laughs> I was like, what's well, Microsoft Word doing? Okay, let's do that. <laughs> we didn't do exactly that, but it's basically all of the, anything that you see, anything that you click on, anything that you read on the interface, that's what I was working on. And that's a huge, I mean, that's a huge deal. That's like that you had a whole team, like they don't just bring in a, you know, somebody who they don't really believe in and give them that, uh, that kind of responsibility. Right. So it seems like you're a star in that field. And yet even that level of success, and I don't know what the compensation I imagine might've been good, all that stuff, you were just, nothing was going to make that be enough. Right. It seems like. Yeah. I mean, when I got the job at Google, I was at a, um, I was at a red carpet premiere for one of these independent films that I had been doing. Like it was a red carpet premiere at, I think at like a strip mall mm -hmm. and uh, it was like at a movie theater at a strip mall. <laughs> and that was like, <laughs> and I was like all dressed up. Like I was in Hollywood. My mom was there and my day, I had a boyfriend who's there and mm -hmm. um, I got the call like pretty much when I was about to go in and watch this movie um, that I was in and I had to accept it because I was in debt and I wanted to stay in New York. And I really mm -hmm. felt like at that point, okay, I've given up my dream for the 18,000th time. So this mm -hmm. must be it. And it, and you're right. I mean, when you look at Google, it's one of the best places to work in the world, you know, free food, you know, there's, um, so many perks and it's just, it's just an amazing place to work. And yet for me, it was like, well, you know, I'm giving up my dream once again to do this. So to go back to Atlanta, which is, I guess that was, what company was it in Atlanta? That was, that was pre Yahoo, right? It was called IQ Interactive. Okay. So while you're there doing that, you mentioned that, I guess that's where stand up was first tried. What led you to do that? Had you always known that if you, that you had a sort of comedic inclination or it sounds like you were going to be happy performing in any, it wasn't a com comedy specific thing until then, right? Yeah. I mean, I was not 
good at acting. I really was failing a lot. <laughs> I was really, I was auditioning for things over and over and over again and just really wasn't getting anywhere. And I started to, I'm the type of person where like, I'm, I try to figure it out. I'm like, what's missing? What, what can I do? Like, what's the thing that's, you know, not working. And so I really took every class I've taken literally every class you can imagine. <laughs> um, if there's a class for it, I'll take it. And so I took writing, I took singing, I took acting classes, I took scene work, I took improv, I took sketch, I took everything. And then the one thing I hadn't tried was stand up. And it was just one of these things where I was like, well, you know, I was starting to realize that being a character is not really about becoming this other thing. It's really about finding that character in yourself. And um, I really wasn't in touch with myself. And I would just get this feedback constantly, which was, Sarah, like when I talk to you, you're so animated and you're so like, you know, exciting and engaging and all of these things. But then when you try to like act and be a character, you lose it all. You become a robot. Like all of the interesting things you do when you are you just go away. And it was just me sort of, I'm kind of like a, a perfectionist, like people pleaser kind of thing. And like, I started to realize like, that's not interesting to watch. You never want to watch an actor who like, you know, exactly what they're going to do. You want to watch an actor who surprises you and does something that like you didn't see coming. And even now I, you know, I just started watching Outlander and like, um, the main actor, I don't know his name, but you know, I started to realize you went, when you watch people, you almost, internally try to predict what they're going to do always. We're constantly doing that. And when they do something that you didn't expect, you love it. You're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. And I did the opposite of that. I was always like, <laughs> I'm going to be as predictable as possible. I'm going to do everything exactly right. And it's, it's just not fun to watch. And so I think the stand-up was like my way of trying to um, capture or try to get in touch with like, what is it about me, you know, and being me that I can put into acting and like, you know, but then I just found that I really liked writing for myself and I really liked being myself. And so, and then I really liked being funny. That was really what I wanted to do because before I was like, how do I cry? How do I cry? Mm -hmm. Like I need to cry. Like that's what actors <laughs> do cry. But I didn't, I don't, you know, I love laughing and I really had to just find that and admit that to myself. So when you now move from Atlanta to New York, the stand-up, was that an ongoing thing? Yeah. I mean, I was doing stand-up while I was like, you know, working at Google and, you know, inviting my coworkers to shows and which actually worked out because, um, you know, the two drink minimum, a lot of people <laughs> uh, at Google can totally afford that. So yes. <laughs> um, I did stand up actually at um, our Google offsites. I, really? I, yeah, I did stand up at the Google talent show. I came in second or third behind this nice. guy who was a beatboxer. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I was just doing it whenever I could and just thought, well, it's just something that's fun. And it was just always, it, I kind of, it, it kind of replaced acting for me and it was just like, Oh, how, how can I get good at this thing? You know? So is it correct that another kind of form of comedy that really interested you and, and I guess a, a particular version of it, a person of it would, would have been the Colbert report. Yes, very much so. Wow. You've really done your research, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like you could just tell my whole, you could just interview yourself <laughs> as me. You know, fine. I'll yeah. lip sync you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I just loved Stephen Colbert because he, he became the thing that he didn't like. He like really became the thing that he became the thing that he wanted to make, make fun of. And I just, I just found it so fascinating and he was so good at it. So um, that's something I, I would like watch his monologues. I would 
write them down. I would like transcribe them. I would study the jokes and try to write my own and create my own sort of Stephen Colbert character. And I was just fascinated with it. So is the Colbert report, rapport, report, yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> responsible for the creation of a blog called the Cooper Review? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so what was that? That was just while you're at Google, a, a outlet to do written comedy? Yeah, um, I was at Google uh, for about three years when I wrote 10 Tricks to Appear Smart Meetings, which I had started writing when I was at Yahoo, but then I just never did anything with it. And then I published it finally, and um, it went viral. And that was the first thing that I did that ever went viral. And so I created the blog based on the success of that one article. Can you tell people if they haven't seen it yet, what was that article about? Because it really did catch on in a big way. Yeah, it did. It's still going. Um, it's... Um, <laughs> It's basically just I I noticed that people would just do things in meetings to make it look like they knew what they were doing, even when they were not paying attention at all. And the first thing I noticed was a guy got up and, and drew a Venn diagram and the Venn diagram just made no sense. And I <laughs> trying to predict what would happen. I, I was thinking to myself, everyone's going to tell him that this is completely irrelevant and, and it, he needs to sit down. But people were like, oh, a Venn diagram. Oh, this is interesting. And and everyone started trying to make the Venn diagram more accurate and all this stuff. And he just sat back down and went back to his laptop. He didn't even pay attention the rest of the meeting. And I wrote down in my notebook how to look smart in a meeting, draw a Venn diagram. And I think the <laughs> same guy, a few meetings later, um, somebody said, somebody was giving a presentation and said, you know, 25% of people clicked on this button. And he said, Oh, about one in four. And everyone, like, Oh, one in four. Yeah. And, and everybody was so impressed, even though right. he didn't actually add in any, any information. And so, well, you were saying another version of that was always like, let's talk about how to scale this. Right. 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 Another one is, will this scale? You yeah. just ask if it's going to scale no matter what it is. Um, and, uh, yeah, all of these tricks, you know, let's ask if we can take a step back here, you know, um, <laughs> pace around the room is a great one. You don't even have to say anything, just pace around and people think, wow, you're really considering this very carefully, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. So this blog post, how does, it seems like it led to a whole bunch of things. What, what were the, in your, you know, in your memory, how did that all unfold in the next few things? Yeah. I mean, I, I started the Cooper review. I, you know, got a few, um, interviews on TV and, um, about it. And then I left Google and I didn't really have a book deal, but I don't know. I thought maybe it could be, become a book. So I, I turned it into an illustrated post and I republished it and it went viral again. And that's when it got the attention of publishers. And I found my agent, Susan Ray Hoffer, and, um, She's still my agent now. And I said, you know what? I want to turn this into a book. And she said, you know what? We're going to turn this into three books. <laughs> that's the kind of literary agent you want. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, we turned it into 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings, which was the first book. And then I did a coloring book uh, for business people where you can like color in low hanging fruit and um, <laughs> someone getting thrown under the bus and things like right. that. Um, and then my third book, How to Be Successful Without Hurting Men's Feelings, which came out in 2018. Yeah. And which I believe is going to be the next Sarah Cooper related screen project we um, well, see probably we, we shot a pilot unfortunately cbs passed on it they passed on it yeah they did and somebody can is that now proprietary or can somebody else 
buy it if they want it. Yeah, that's what that's what we're hoping for. We're hoping to, to yeah. uh, shop it to other places. But we got to shoot a pilot with Natalie Morales and Amy Landecker and uh, Bradley Whitford. I mean, it was just an amazing cast. Um, of that's people. amazing. Yeah. yeah. So, well, I don't want to get too far. Well, you know, we'll come back to, yeah. <laughs> you know, what's coming up for you, but I guess now in the midst of, so you leave Google, I think 2014, you're, you're, as you say, you're embarking on this writing career. Well, the, the book, a hundred tricks to appear smart in meetings came out October, 2016. In, 20, okay, so. in, in November 2016, the worst thing in the world ever happened. I'm sure everybody remembers. And so yes. that it really I, I had a lot of things like lined up to try to promote. I thought it, that book was going to change my life. I was going to be a millionaire and it just didn't happen. And I just felt really sad about it. And so, yeah, that was the first time that was that was the first thing that happened. <laughs> well, and you're and you're teeing it up perfectly for what I wanted to ask you about, which was November 26, whatever it was, I think November 3rd, 2016, we, I think 99% of us didn't see it coming. What we ended up with, it was upsetting enough to me as, you know, a straight white male from the United States. I wonder for, you know, for you as a woman of color who was, you know, immigrated at a young age to this country from one of the places that this guy's now, I mean, the first, some of the first things he was doing were uh, going after immigrants, calling majority black countries, shithole countries, all of that. Before you were ever mobilized to figure out how you could take this on, just how did you personally respond to this jarring development? It was, it was excruciating. I mean, it was really, I, I experienced all the emotions over the course of that year. At first, I thought it was so funny that he was running. It was the most hysterical thing in the world. I even bought a Trump t-shirt because I thought, <laughs> oh, this is going to be worth something because this is, this is never happening. Right. And then once you, you know, once I started realizing, oh no, people are actually taking him seriously. And then, oh wow, he, he actually might have a chance. And I remember, feeling about three weeks before the election, like he might actually win. And I, I started, mm -hmm. I woke up like crying because I was like, I think he's going to win. And I remember being on Twitter the day of the election. And I think I tweeted something about how like I, I, I have bad feeling, you know, mm -hmm. and so many people wrote Sarah, 99%. There's no way, there's absolutely no way this is happening. And then it happened. And that night I didn't sleep and um, it was just, it was so sad. I was on a plane the next day watching Hillary Clinton's um, speech and yeah. crying on the plane. And I was just, I didn't know. I, I It's kind of like when you see an earthquake, you know how sometimes they say you see an earthquake and you see the earth like move in a way that it's not supposed to move, like the, the streets wave. It's like it, nothing made sense. It was like up was mm -hmm. down, down was up. Nothing made sense. I, I didn't know you know, and it's like, it's like all the people that are the conspiracy theorists were over there. And then all of a sudden I was one of them, you know, we just yeah, yeah, yeah. places, you know, <laughs> all of a sudden I was like, wait, what's happening? What does this mean? What's going on? You know, I got very paranoid. I got very angry. Well, I was going to say there's, there's stages of grief, I guess, you know, and in this case, you, you know, your first interaction with Trump online 
was well before you were making any videos, right? What happened in October 2017, which wasn't a joke, but it was right. Anyway, let me let you take that. Yeah, away. yeah, I was I was one of his reply guys, I guess. Um, you know, I was always replying to his tweets and telling him what an idiot he was because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I really felt like you know I was doing my civic civic duty. Uh, I was right that. there with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, I just tweeted something about how like fake news, Trump uh, is not fit for presidency and real news trump was never fit for the presidency or something just really stupid and innocuous and but i guess people started liking it and retweeting it and he he saw it and then he blocked me and it was just like oh my god i've been blocked by the president of the united Mm -hmm. states um which was a huge claim to fame at the time yes i I was i was always like please it would it would make my life so much better if this asshole would just block me (laughs) um but so so that's 20 2016 he gets elected 2017 you get blocked 2018 your book how to be successful without hurting men's feelings comes out and then i guess was it in 2019 or somewhere along then when did tiktok first cross your radar just the existence of it it was August 2019. I went to go hang out with my nephews um, in Maryland and trying to bond with my little Ryan and Tyler. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I was like, show me TikTok. And I installed it on my phone and we made a few videos. And I was like, oh, that was fun. Little bonding. But they were like, Aunt Sarah, you're too old for this. You know, you're, <laughs> you know. And uh, so, I, yeah, I just kind of put it away and didn't really think about it again. I guess, what was it then that people, I think, think that your first Trump lip syncing one to go viral was had a medical. But in fact, there were, I believe, several, you know, attempts that didn't go viral before that to do similar stuff. What even let's just say for the first one of those, what made you turn to that medium as a as a outlet for I mean, even just the idea of of lip syncing anywhere, but particularly on TikTok. How did that come about? Well, I was playing around TikTok um, when we were locked down in quarantine and um, I was trying to do a dance and I, ugh, bad, <laughs> very bad at that. Um, you know, making little videos, little sketches here and there. And then I saw, I saw a woman lip sync him. And I think it was the quote was, it might get bigger, it might get smaller, but whatever. And it was something stupid that he said. And I saw this woman lip sync and I was like, wow, that is fascinating. Like it's fascinating <laughs> hearing his voice coming out of someone, someone else that looks nothing like him and who, who mm-hmm. isn't him. And I just, I was like, I got to try that. Um, and uh, I think the first one I did was maybe when he was just talking about companies or something like that. He was just one of these press conferences where he just listed companies. That's all yeah. he did for an hour is list right. companies. Um, and so I made a little video with that. And then I think another one where I think that it really clicked for me, one where I was listening to one of his press conferences and he said something about, well, somebody asked him how he was going to get something done. And he said, well, you know, I'm going to form a committee. Yeah, I'll call it a committee. And uh, we're going to make decisions and uh, we're going to make decisions fairly quickly. And I think they're going to be the right decisions. And I was like, 
I felt like I was back in one of those meetings. I was just going to say. I felt like like I was back in one of those meetings and a guy who said absolutely nothing was being lauded and applauded and told he was brilliant for saying absolutely nothing. And Mm -hmm. I I got that because I'm a woman and a person of color and immigrant. I got that little jealous feeling of just like, (laughs) I want to do that. I want to say nothing and have people think I'm amazing, you know? (laughs) So, I mean, that was the first instinct of just like, yeah, I'm just this guy in a meeting and I'm just saying nothing and, you know, but it's me doing it. Um, Right. And it felt it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And so what I think maybe distinguished had a medical, which is now April 2020, just like a month into the pandemic, what distinguished that one from those earlier attempts was it had a little more production value. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was, um, you know, I played a... I played a character reacting to him, which came from the audio because you hear him go, we're going to check that, right? You know, you hear him saying like, yeah, we're going to check that. And I just, I listened to it and I immediately saw the person on the other side going, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) This is where he's, uh, this is where he's talking about injecting disinfectant, right? And Deborah Burks is just like crapping herself yeah right we're gonna put light inside the body you know um and we're we haven't tried that yet but we're gonna test that right and the other thing is we can put you know disinfectant you know because it knocks it out you know in a minute in a minute it'll just knock it out (laughs) right which he then later claimed he was joking which he does not joke um so tell me about you put that up on i think i had read it was like a thursday night or something yeah um you go to sleep maybe and wake up. And what's the first indication that you're dealing with something unexpected here? Um, it was, you know, it had a million views. Um, and I overnight a day. Yeah. I think oh by my the God. next day. Yeah. I think it had a million views and it was going crazy viral. And, um, I, you know, I, I'd made a few videos that went kind of viral before and then I, you know, I'd had other things go viral. So I just really thought, oh, cool. Yay. Success. I made a viral <laughs> video in the pandemic. You know, that was really, I mean, it was, it's so much fun going viral. It's really just, it's, it's nice when you make something and a bunch of people see it and a bunch of people like it. So I didn't really think, I, I don't, I mean, I think I, I mentioned it to my manager at the time. I was like, oh my God, this is going viral. And he was like, cool. Like he didn't even think it was a big deal. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, I guess maybe it's actually not that big of a deal. And then I think Jerry Seinfeld started talking Mm -hmm. about it. And that was like, Mm -hmm. whoa, Jerry Seinfeld's talking about it. So I told told that to my manager and he was like, cool. (laughs) I was like, okay, I guess it's really not a big deal. So I really, I just thought it was like a one and done kind of like one of those, you know, amazing things that happens and then go away. But then the pandemic kept going on and he kept saying dumb shit. And I just kept Mm -hmm. making videos because it was just fun. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, let's just um, note that as you continue doing these, and I'm just going to mention a few titles that may provoke uh, memories for people, How to People, Woman, Man, Camera, TV, How to Bunker, How to TikTok, which gets meta. Um, (laughs) But obviously the following's growing. Everybody's still 
locked down at home. And I'm just going to mention a few things. You mentioned Jerry Seinfeld commenting, also share. I understand that people like George Conway are DMing with special requests for videos. At some point, Kamala Harris wants to get in touch. Then the late night stuff begins where you end up filling in for Kimmel, right? And being on some of these others. But I wondered for you experiencing this, you were like the rest of us locked down in a deadly pandemic. And if you went outside, you, I believe, wore a mask. And so presumably people weren't recognizing or approaching you in real life. So was it sort of almost like a a fever dream that this world has changed when you're in front of your computer, but in other, in any other sense, you, the ways that you would normally feel that you've broken through in this way, it probably wasn't happening, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I I did Alan from my couch. I did Fallon from my couch. You know, I, a lot of it was, you know, still at home and, um, and yeah, I would go out and wear a mask. I think the first time I got recognized, I, I had taken my mask down for some reason to pick up my dog's poop. And (laughs) this little girl was like, are you Sarah Cooper? And I was like, oh yeah, I'm Sarah Cooper. Do you watch my videos? And she was like, no, my dad watches them. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, cool. You know? Um, and I mean, and then, you know, I did like a photo shoot in the neighborhood and then somebody, a few people came by and were just like, thank you. Like all everyone said was just thank you. When they did recognize me, it was just like, thank you so much. And I still get that all the time. Like you got Mm -hmm. me through, you got me through. And it just makes me feel so good. But I, I, you know, I went from 60,000 Twitter followers to 2.3 million. You know, it was, it's a crazy amount of, it just snowballed. But at the same time, I just have no concept. I, I still feel like it what, I don't know what happened. Like I, I was, you know, doing a zoom with Ben Stiller and I was just like, (laughs) is this happening? Like it just, (laughs) none of it's really, it just, none of it felt real, you know, none of it felt like it was really happening. And I've met all these amazing people and all this stuff, but it's still, I just, people are like, you're Sarah Cooper. And I'm like, I don't really feel like anything's really changed that much. You know what I mean? Well, and even your your special, which, of course, we're going to come to, I mean, it had to be made under the most bizarre of circumstances. So I guess it just it's like you are the case study in essentially becoming famous when nobody can go right. uh, outside and, and what that is like. But I guess I, I have to ask about was, you know, was there any of the flip side where, you know, clearly there are more than a few Trumpers who are a little unhinged where have you had to uh have you have you felt any of that coming in your direction knock on wood i haven't <laughs> and um mm. you know even when trump himself was asked about my videos he just was like yes. i don't know who she is what are you talking about so <laughs> um yeah i mean honestly i think there was more of a backlash from people who were like i don't know like Sarah Cooper, she's just lip syncing, you know, she's not funny, you know, she's like, um, I think I was called like boomer, a boomer comedian, because boomers love me. And which is true. <laughs> boomers do love me. Um, and I think there was more of a backlash from just like, people thinking I did nothing. And I came out of nowhere. And I didn't deserve like what I was getting. I think there was more of a backlash on that than there was from Trumpers. I would literally get people who were Trump supporters saying I love Trump, but this is funny. Like they were, <laughs> they were, they thought it was funny too. So right. I really didn't get the backlash that my dad was even like, you know, um, I don't want to get deported, you know, like 
he was scared <laughs> that maybe there would be some huge backlash against me or something like well, that. Well, I mean, I guess the key is that you were literally just using his own words. You're not uh, you're not projecting editorial comment beyond the the stuff that we're going to you know come to. But I guess one other question is here you are with your video content blowing up. I think initially was it exclusively on TikTok? Then it goes beyond there. But like TikTok is not monetizable. Twitter is not monetizable. For all this happiness that you're bringing the people who you're doing these for and the the skill with which you did it, what could you actually personally kind of gain from it beyond hoping that it would lead to something like what it ultimately, I guess, with Netflix or things that came around? It, it wasn't like, I can't imagine a hugely... Uh, profitable venture in, in and of itself, was it? No, no, I, I wasn't making any money. I mean, I was making a little money on YouTube ads and that's about it. Mm -hmm. I would put the videos on YouTube, but yeah, I wasn't, um, yeah, I was really just doing it for fun. And then, and then eventually yeah. I was doing it because people were demanding it. And I was like, okay, yes. people need these. So. <laughs> now when Trump himself targeted TikTok and was like, we're going to shut this down, there were some people out there who thought, Maybe he secretly is watching you and feels like that's the way to deal with it. I mean, that is that is a Trumpian way of handling things. Let's just take down the whole platform. It wouldn't have worked because I guess by that point you were already working beyond TikTok and the 60 second requirements. But what did you make of that, that he when he when he started going after TikTok? Um, I, you know, I I. I think it was also the TikTokers who uh, disrupted his rally and made sure that nobody showed up. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people thought it was that as well. Um, I I mean, when when someone said my name to his face in that interview, that was that was a scary moment. That was like, mm -hmm. whoa, he actually has heard. At least I know he's heard my name, which I didn't <laughs> like. I didn't like that part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so. Yeah, I didn't I didn't think he was going to shut it down because of me or whatever. I just thought it was ridiculous, but so on brand, so on brand for him to do that. Yes. So if we can kind of dissect like what made these things really click with people, I mean, there were obviously numerous other people who did Trump impersonations, some of which I thought were pretty good. You know, Alec Baldwin had his moments. There's this guy who I'm sure you've probably seen on social media, J.L. Coven, I thought was very yeah, good. Yeah, uh, he hates me. <laughs> he hates you? Why? Oh, he well, he did this whole interview about how it was really frustrating the attention I was getting for just, you know, lip syncing him, whereas he was doing improv and like adding his own and writing his own stuff. And so, yeah, I've well, never, I'm not I mean, going to. No, I've never yeah, really talked I, to him, but I, I think he felt he was kind of like a little sour. He was bitter about it. Well, my only point in bringing up these other examples is, you know, it was interesting to see these white guys doing it. But to, again, see Trump's words coming out of somebody who in, in a lot of ways is his exact opposite. Man versus woman, old versus young, white versus black, idiot versus educated person. In some ways, I guess, how do you think that? affected the viewer experience. It just seems like in some ways it's like the ultimate insult to him to be mocked by his exact opposite, right? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one thing to be played by Alec Baldwin, who is, is kind of, you know, I wouldn't say Alec Baldwin is a, is Trump, but he's sort of a contemporary, like he's got the power, he's got the money, he's not an idiot, you know, but he's he's got all of that going for him. Whereas with me, I don't have 
I don't have the, the people calling me sir and like people, you know, following me around telling me I'm a genius or whatever. Um, and so for, for me, I think it just kind of highlights how people said that they were actually able to hear what he was saying when it it was coming out of my, my mouth. And the reason is because we're so, we're so visual that when we see a man, a powerful white man, rich in a suit and people are nodding around him, we think, well, yeah, this, this must make sense because all of these things sort of add up to power and money and like, you know, what I looked up, what I look up to or whatever. So coming out of my mouth, I think it just, it was just like, <laughs> you know, for, for for better or worse, when a, a black woman is, is talking, we're like, wait, what's she saying? I bet she's lying. Like, what is she? No, what's she really saying? And I think we like we're I think people just listened a little bit more, which was great because it's like he's not saying anything. Like, look, can we right. all just agree? And I think for a lot of people, it was like so cathartic, like, oh, I'm not crazy. He does sound ridiculous. He is an idiot. He is the mm-hmm. worst president we've ever had. He is incompetent, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, somebody called it like the the antidote to gaslighting, which I thought yeah. was like the, a brilliant way to describe it because he's gaslighting us constantly. And we're kind of, a lot of people are just kind of taking it. But then when it's out of my mouth, you're like, oh, uh, no, that actually doesn't make any sense. And I can actually see that now. And I can hear that pretty clearly now. So do you think, though, I mean, had TikTok been around when George W. Bush was president and was also regularly saying stupid things with great confidence, would this same thing have had the same effect? Or is there something specific about Trump? Wow. Now I want to go lip sync George Bush. (laughs) That's such a great idea. Um, I think it would have. I think it would be the same thing, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what does it tell us about you that you have in some ways gravitated towards and and really succeeded tremendously in areas that are primarily dominated by the guy, the kind of person who you're saying, you know, is essentially your exact opposite. I mean, technology is a heavily white male, mm-hmm. you know, industry, yeah. mm-hmm. comedy. Um, now you're coming into Hollywood, which we are well aware of has its own mm-hmm. issues. What is, is there something you think that maybe subconsciously draws you to that? Yeah, I'm a masochist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hate myself. Um, I am. Um, I always, yeah, I had this joke about like, I think on the inside, I'm just like a white dude named Craig, you know, like I, um, <laughs> because I, um, I love Bob Marley. Um, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I work in tech. I, I did stand up comedy. Um, so I don't, I don't know what it is, but I think for some reason I, maybe it's just growing up being an immigrant and just feel like, I think this, the, the moment I moved here, even though I was three years old, I was immediately like, how do I fit in? How do I fit Mm -hmm. in here? And I think that turned on my observational skills and it was all like sort of self-preservation of just like, how can I make it look like I know what I'm doing the way that Mm -hmm. everyone else looks like they know what they're doing. And so, um, a lot of that is, what are white men doing? Because white men sort of are in charge in, in this country for, for the most part. And so I think that that's what happened. And, you know, as an immigrant, I just observed, 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 and then I just imitated. So when you think back to your childhood, um, which I sort of gloss or go right from where you were born to your contract at 17, but had the, had your childhood growing up in 
you know, growing up as a, as a young black girl in Rockville, is this a diverse community? I was the only, I was one of very few black people in my classes growing up. Yeah. So, so had, had you prior to entering the academic or corporate worlds, had you encountered bullshit related to race or was it really only as an adult? No, I mean, I was asked, I was getting asked, what are you from, you know, when I was like eight or seven, you know, I, um, (laughs) I didn't really know. I didn't really know what I was. I, my best friend growing up was, um, Jewish. She still is. And her name's, uh, Stacy. And, um, you know, we were walking, um, walking home and some white high school kids drove by and yelled out the N word. And, um, I thought they were talking to her. <laughs> I didn't even know, you know what I mean? Cause when you, when you yeah. come to this country as an immigrant and we came from a, you know, a very diverse Jamaica is so diverse. My grandmother's yeah. Chinese. My other grandmother is, is German. Like we're all very mixed and you come here and then all of a sudden you're just black. And it's like, mm-hmm. we don't need, we, as immigrants, we don't even really know what that means. And, um, well, you have a, a good, joke about, I think, being at the mall with your dad, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was at the mall with my dad and he's like, look at those black people over there. And I'm like, dad, that's a mirror, you know, because he's, <laughs> his concept of, of, of how he's being seen and how he sees people are just, it's just completely, right. you know, defined by America in a way that he doesn't understand, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the upside of this was obviously, I would imagine that you're, you're finally, after all these years of trying to just keep a, a foot in performing while doing what you have to do to, you know, pay the bills and just like everybody else here, you're finally being recognized and applauded in a major, major way for your abilities. And yet, was there any part of you that was concerned? Like, wait a minute, I have become so well known as the young woman who lip syncs Trump that that will be all I'm known for? Or what if he loses, which would obviously on one level be great, but then what happens to me then? Or where, like, how, how did, was any of that, a, 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 did you have time to even think about like what comes after this? I think because I had, you know, written those books, I, I kind of knew that there were other things that I could do. I, I, I knew that. And I, there was no world in which I was going to be disappointed if he lost, like no <laughs> world in hell right, would I right, ever, right. like, I was so happy that he lost. And I'm, you know, I, I would even give up everything for him to have never been president. I would give it all up, um, because it's not worth it. But, um, I, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a tough thing because something magical did happen when I was doing those vis- videos. And so it, it is, I think it is a, a thing of, well, how do I find something magical like that again? You know, and I, I you know, hopefully I will find something else like that. Or so one of these many projects I'm working on will be something else magical. But I, I look at it as just a very special thing that I was able to do that actually brought me a lot of great things. And so I'm, I'm happy about that, but I, I, I don't, um, don't miss, don't miss him. Don't miss. him. Although sometimes when I see, you know, he's still talking at Mar-a-Lago about, you know, the recount, (laughs) you know, once in a while I'll watch a video, especially that, that call where he's asking the Atlanta commissioner to like, I I really wanted to do that. I was tempted as hell to do that, that call. (laughs) 
Um, and so I listened to the whole thing. I lip synced the whole thing just to myself in, in private, you know, but yeah, I don't want to just be associated with the, the person I hate the most in the world. I mean, that's the toughest thing is that like my success will forever be tied to the person who's like one of the worst people who's ever existed. And so that's, that's tough, but I think well, I, but hopefully we can move on from it. Well, and I mean, the fact is that this Netflix special was one of the, I guess, first things that was allowing you to take that and use it towards other things. And I just want to point out, as we'll have also done in the intro, but just um, this is a Netflix special under an hour. People can knock it out really quickly. And, and it's fun. Produced by Maya Rudolph and Natasha Leon, directed by Natasha. So many star cameos centering on you as this news anchor who is reporting on and experiencing our descent into hell um, <laughs> in this year in which everything bad hits at once. And I guess I just want to ask, I mean, so when along the line uh, did this come about? Because it's been such a quick turnaround. This came out or day dropped on October 27th, right before the election. This whole, your whole, your first videos were in April yeah. of 2020. <laughs> so we're talking about April, May, June, July, August, September, October, seven months from first video to Netflix special. Yeah. Insane. Not probably, <laughs> I would not advise anyone else to attempt <laughs> to do what we did because, you know, it was a lot of people's first production back from mm -hmm. being, you know, um, in lockdown. It was my first production ever. It was mm -hmm. my time. I was on set. The last time I was on set, I think I was like, you know, I had a line on some show like years ago or whatever. I think it was Vampire Diaries or something like that. <laughs> um, and now I was number one on the call sheet. Like, and now there were like a hundred people with tags that said Sarah Cooper on it. It was, it was so surreal. And I, um, I'm proud of, proud of everyone who worked on it and proud of what we were able to do in, we were, we were doing all of the writing on Zoom. We were doing all of the meetings on Zoom. We had all these strict COVID protocols and it was all brand new for everybody. And and for us to have done it, written it, produced it, direct, you know, all of that stuff without anyone getting sick, it, it was it was an incredible, incredible feat. But even the, the fact that it existed at all, it seems like it was because you, among your many fans, were people like Maya and Natasha, yeah. right? Who were saying this should not be a... Uh, a one-off thing like she deserves a, a greater platform right mm -hmm. yeah I mean she Maya Rudolph said to me oh I'm so excited about this special I love when good things happen to good people and she had known me for a week when she said that and I was like <laughs> you don't even know me but thank you so much and yeah I mean they're Maya and Natasha and um Danielle Renfrew were amazing to work with yeah. um and uh yeah I mean I I I guess, yeah, a lot of people just think I'm a really nice person. I don't know why. But. <laughs> well, and so to make this thing happen in that shorter time frame, you were writing on it along with a, a handful of other talented, yeah. actually very, like Paula Pell used to be like a head yes. SNL writer and a whole bunch of people. Um, then you're acting in every scene of it with, everyone from Helen Marin to Megan the Stallion. Yeah. Um, just, uh, I guess for you, what was the experience like? And also in the grand scheme of things, if you, you know, if you could snap your fingers, even before the TikTok videos, if somebody said like, what's your, what would be the greatest landing place? Would it be like 
I want to be at SNL or I want to have my own series or so just what it was like doing this and, and what the ultimate would, would actually be. It was very fast paced. And, uh, I, you know, I have to give a shout out to the set designer too. all that, that set that, that, um, JC Molina was able to put together. was amazing. It was, it was just so, I, I flew, that was the first time I flew in COVID, you know, to LA, um, stayed there for six weeks and, I'm on set with Jane Lynch one day and John Hamm the next day and Helen Mirren and I were Helen Mirren and I were rehearsing on Zoom and she was lip syncing and she was <laughs> not great at it at first but then got very good at it very very good at it and she was having so much fun when we actually shot that um she actually came up with like the towel snapping that we were doing <laughs> when we were um doing the bus scene um so for me it was just like put one foot in front of the other and you know what I mean? Like, cause it's Helen, she's a dame, you know, you, like <laughs> I still can't believe that I was able to do that. So it was just, it was just a very surreal, like, um, if I stop to think about what's happening right now, I might pass out. So I better <laughs> not even think about it and just keep going. That's how right. it felt. And I think my, my ultimate goal is, is to, uh, to have my own series and to, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, be like the, the guy that first met, saw that first video, Jerry Seinfeld, one of my, you know, favorite, um, comedians. I watch Seinfeld like every night. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's one of my favorites. And so I just, I kind of want to, I kind of want to take this, this character of, you know, a, uh, blowhard and ask what if a black woman was a blowhard, you know, like that would be a fun thing to do. So that's, it's kind of my, one of my goals. I was going to say, I hope that you, do uh you know the on camera as well as the writing because i saw with this with this cbs uh thing that we talked about that i think you were only gonna be only but but gonna be writing i mean you need to you need to be on camera you are you're that's part of what i thought you were great with but so and and the reason to put out this netflix thing right before the election you know you i guess you could have theoretically not had to rush as fast as you guys did but did you feel that it would hopefully have some impact on the election or that's when the interest would be greatest in, you know, if Trump lost or just what was the thought process with that? Yeah, I mean, I think we were all praying that he lost. And because there was, you know, Trump content in there, I think that, you know, uh, it, the, the interest would be greater, you know, while while he was still in, in office and in power. Um, in his head, he's still in power now. So I guess yeah, that right. all goes away. <laughs> But um, there was that. And then there was also like, yeah, like, can we get more people engaged and um, understanding like how serious this and how much of an idiot this guy is? You know, if the more people, if more people understand it, then maybe they'll actually go out and vote. And um, so I'm hoping that that we wanted to have some kind of impact with that as well. Sure. All right. So with the last minute, I hope I can just give you a few like almost rapid fire, big picture, but just what your take is. So if you had never gone on TikTok to lip lip sync Trump ever. Um, and life had just gone on as it had been going, would you have been content or was something always ultimately going to give? Like, were you going to have to like, you know what I'm saying? Like, did would you have been okay with just spending the rest of your life at the level of performing work that you were getting up to that point? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was kind of in 2019, at the end of 2019, I wrote a journal where I was just like, I can't do this anymore. This isn't going anywhere. So I was going to actually go back to Google or try to get another job at the end of 2019. Um, and so I am guessing that's probably where I'd be right now is at another full time job. <laughs> so and, you know, performing on the side, writing on the side. And that's probably what I would be doing now. And yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd be OK with that. I mean. Maybe I wouldn't get to meet you, Scott. <laughs> uh, no, it's my it's a treat for me. So, um, all right. So here's another side of that question. So your your parents who understandably had encouraged you to do the responsible thing, go get your practical degrees and all yeah. of that. What do they make of everything that's happened in the last year? Um, they're really proud and impressed and uh, surprised. Uh, my dad has. I started a little library of all my little newspaper clippings and, you know, magazine articles and things like that. They're, you know, they're really excited for me because I'm I'm actually doing what I love right now. And I never thought I would be able to do that, to be able to be paid to write, to make people laugh. is just a dream come true that I never thought would happen. So, yeah, I think they're just really happy that I'm happy. That's awesome. And then finally, I I do get the sense that, you know, you're not itching to do another Trump lip syncing video. But is there any scenario in which you would? Is there something that could get you to put back on the uniform? <laughs> I, <laughs> um, I, um, I think it's just one of those things where, like, I have to prove to myself that there's something else I can do and be successful at. And then once that happens... I'll probably lip sync Trump all the time again, you know what I mean? Like, just because it's a fun thing to do. But I, right now it's like, no, I have to separate myself and put a little distance and like make something else. And then once I do that, then maybe it'll be this fun little thing that I can do every once in a while. And I, I would have no trouble doing it. I am not saying though, that I want him to be elected ever again. Right. Ever again. <laughs> so let's make that clear. Yeah. Well, I uh, thank you for all the entertainment and uh, for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Scott. This was so much fun. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at THR.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity. And the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.